Welcome to Off the Clock, a podcast by Procino Wells and Woodland, where we take a team-centered, family-focused approach to serving the estate planning and elder law needs of our community on the Eastern Shore. I'm Amber Woodland, one of the attorneys at PWW Law, and I'm joined today by another one of our attorneys, Michelle Procino Wells. Uh, We're excited to talk about estate planning pitfalls and some myths today, so let's just jump right in. Absolutely. One of the things we see all the time is failure to plan for tangible property. What even is tangible (laughs) property? How do we prevent conflict around that type of property? So do you want to just define tangible property for us and, and help guide us on how we should consider that as part of our estate plan? Absolutely. And you're right. Tangible personal property. So number one, what, what is that? Mm-hmm. Um, cause that's one of those, you know, legal, legal mumbo jumbo kind of, kind of terms. Um, so it means your stuff, your furniture, your jewelry, your cars, your tools, your shotguns, your pets, you know, all of the kind of personal belongings. And what it doesn't include, it doesn't include your real estate. It doesn't include bank accounts or investments, those kinds of things. So, you know, splitting up a bank, you know, mom passes away, she has five kids. It's easy to split up the bank accounts or the real estate gets sold and you split up the money five ways if that's her wishes. But distributing the tangible personal property, those personal possessions is one of the biggest areas of conflict that we see. Um, Just because you can't, you know, saw a diamond ring into five pieces. Um, And so that's something that we really, you know, again, one of our goals in estate planning is to try to avoid and reduce the chance of conflict among families, you know, after a loved one passes away. So it's really important to think about what's going to happen to your stuff when you pass away. How's that going to get distributed? Do you want it all to be sold? Um, You know, with wills and trusts, you can actually create a separate list that you can have with your documents where you can specify, you know, who gets the diamond ring or who gets the grandfather clock or the painting or whatever it might be. So really important planning. Um, and we really encourage people to use those lists, um, to try to avoid that conflict, especially, you know, like second marriage situations. Um, you know, just again, really, really important planning, um, to try to avoid conflict. I remember when my grandmom passed away back in 2004, I couldn't wait to get in her attic and look Mm -hmm. for all the treasures and all of that stuff that wasn't necessarily of monetary value. It was all sentimentally valuable. And I think that that's one of the pitfalls we see is sometimes people, when they think about their estate planning, they think about their real estate and their money because those are the items that are monetarily valuable. And the the pitfall is failing to plan for the personal possessions. Right. And I'll tell you, that made me think about when my grandmother passed away, she had a big farmhouse full of stuff, not valuable. You know, she had a few antiques, but nothing of extreme value. People often think that, you know, I've had clients, I think once a week, someone says to me, oh, I don't really have anything all that valuable. It doesn't take valuable for your family to fight over it. That's one thing we have definitely learned definitely. in our practices. So really important to think about that. But my grandmother, she had a roll of masking tape and a black magic marker. And she went around that big farmhouse and she put names on P- on furniture. And that's how, and while thank goodness it, it worked out okay when she passed, um, wasn't legally binding. So we don't recommend that, you know, creating one of those lists or actually putting specific wishes in the estate planning documents. That's that's going to make sure your wishes are carried out. So that's obviously what we recommend. And we're planning a whole nother episode on nothing but <laughs> right. planning for right. your personal property. We could talk about that for an hour, but yeah. let's talk about 
Uh, the second pitfall that we see, which is married couples failing to do estate planning altogether, but especially thinking that because they're married, they don't need powers of attorney for one another. They sort of just assume that because of the marriage, they're able to do everything for each other right. and, and just explain why the power of attorney is so important, even for married couples. Right. So a power of attorney, you know, legal document in which you name an agent that can act for you if you become disabled or incapacitated, or even we often see them used just as a person becomes elderly and they start slowing down and they, they need help. But yeah, huge misconception out there among married couples that think that they can automatically act for one another. And I think they become accustomed to that because, you know, they have a joint bank account and they can either one transact business with that bank account. But what I, what I always tell clients, try to get into your spouse's IRA right. and see how far you get or try to sell the house and sign the deed for your spouse like you're not going to have legal authority to do those things so power of attorney planning again have a whole episode <laughs> planned for just that topic um, but powers of attorney really the most important estate planning really one of the easiest estate planning documents to create um, but really important even for married couples Awesome. So let's talk about another pitfall, which is jointly owned bank mm. accounts, adding another person's name to the account just because <laughs> it seems convenient, someone to pay my bills if I become incapacitated and the risks right. to doing that. Right. So again, classic, classic scenario I, I've seen over the year, you know, uh, one spouse passes away surviving spouse goes to the bank, you know, say husband passes, wife goes to the bank to remove, you know, her late husband's name from the account. And, you know, somebody at the bank with the best of intentions says, oh my goodness, you know, you really should add somebody else's name to the account just in case, you know, just in case. So in case you need help paying your bills or whatever. And so this happens all the time where people will add other people's names to their accounts, not understanding that when you do that, you're making a gift of that account to that person. The next day, that person could go to the bank and clean out the account. And everybody always thinks, oh, my my child, my daughter would never, never. my son would never. But I can tell you lots of stories. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing is, you know, people... Listeners right now, you're thinking, oh, my, my family would never. Okay, right. But just think about all those people, you know, the people whose kids did clean out the bank account. Um Surely when they put that person's name on the account, they didn't think their child was capable of that or they wouldn't have added that name to the account. So it happens. The other part of that is when you pass away, that account becomes owned by that surviving owner. So that's another thing. People say to me, oh, well, she's going to use that to pay for my funeral and then she's going to pay the bills and then she'll share what's left over with you know, her siblings. Yeah, well, again, we've seen way too many sad stories of where that person, once they realize that legally that account belongs to them and they can keep it and they don't have to share with anybody and they don't have to pay any bills, that's exactly what they do. So good planning prevents that. Good power of attorney, a trust, you know, having good planning is so much better than overuse of jointly owned accounts. They do sometimes have a place, mm -hmm. but only as part, you know, it needs to be an intentional plan and not a default. Right. Because there's better planning. Right. To accomplish the goal. Yes. So how about overuse of beneficiary designations <laughs> and trying to maybe do some homemade estate planning. Yes. So thinking, oh, well, I'll leave my assets by beneficiary designation. I'll right. avoid probate through a beneficiary designation. I remember years ago, you had a situation in Newcastle County, actually, where there were beneficiaries designated on every asset, leaving <laughs> mm -hmm. the only asset in the estate of 
rental complex. Mm-hmm. So there was no cash. You want right. to talk about that experience right. and, yeah. and kind of the pitfall well, of right. overusing beneficiary designations? Yes, yeah, so we do see that. You know, people, some people have figured out that if you use beneficiary designations, the assets will pass outside the probate process, which, you know, at first blush, that seems like a great planning idea, but when people overuse beneficiary designations, it can create a, create a huge problem. And exactly what you said, when there's no liquidity in the estate to pay bills, Who's gonna pay? and if all there is is a is a you know real estate that's left, and you know oftentimes real estate can't be easily or quickly sold. How's the executor or the trustee going to pay bills? Even the funeral, how are they going to pay for that? And so you always have to intentionally build liquidity into an estate plan. But beneficiary designations, again, it's like the joint accounts. You know, people have said, oh, well, you know, on my life insurance, now that's to pay for my funeral, but I've got my kids named as beneficiaries and they'll use it. They'll pay it to the funeral home. Well, what if they don't? <laughs> you know, and, and again, I could, you know, we could talk for an hour about that. They take um, a vacation with that money instead. Right. Or they go buy a new car once they realize, or what really is even worse, in my opinion, is when, you know, if there's two kids and they each get their half of the life insurance and one of them puts money for the funeral and the other doesn't. Like that is so incredibly unfair and certainly never what, you know, mom and dad wanted. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. So, you know, beneficiary designations, again, they, they have an appropriate use, but you have to be really careful too. beneficiary designations. You know, if I name my son as my beneficiary and what happens if when I pass away, if he's in the middle of a divorce or if he's become disabled or if he passed away, you know, there's no protections when you just name a person. Um, So we'll talk about naming a trust as a beneficiary and how that's such better planning. And talk about a time and a place for beneficiary designations. There's no one size fits all to this. Retirement accounts typically have beneficiaries designated on them, but thinking you can use beneficiary designations as a default estate plan isn't ever recommended right? because there's a lot of holes in that plan. I I think that that leads us right into the next topic of pitfalls, which is homemade estate (laughs) planning. And debunking the myth that estate planning is just filling names into blanks. Right. And it's just as simple as buying a kit from Susie Orman or downloading (laughs) some forms off the internet or going to your local office supply store and buying some sort of kit. So why don't we recommend homemade estate plans and what are the pitfalls and risks? Well, I have had so many people ask me, you know, over the years, well, can I just write my own will? And it took me a while to kind of figure out the answer to that question. Um, and, but the answer is you can if you know what you're doing. And people don't know what they're doing. Or if they fill in blanks in a form or they go to rocketlawyer.com, they don't know what they're doing. And, you know, what what ends up happening is if they don't know what they're doing and those documents aren't prepared properly or thoroughly, they can create a mess. And we've seen those messes. We've seen litigation that goes on for years and costs, you know, six figures because there was a will that, you know, had blanks in it because they downloaded a form or it wasn't, you know, witnessed and notarized properly or it wasn't thorough. It didn't, you know, I had one one time where it it didn't name an executor. And then there was this whole dispute about who had authority to be executor and what that should look like. So homemade estate plan Planning, you know, again, and, and it comes in all different forms. It's the downloadable forms. It's the overuse of the beneficiary designations or the joint ownership on assets. But it's really risky. Um, you know, quick story about that kind of goes back to the beneficiary designations or the joint ownership. I had a, a, an estate once 
where mom had named people on all of her accounts. And then she had these dollar amount gifts in her will. Um, and it was a will she created on her own. And what she did, what we realized is those accounts, they were the same dollar amounts that she listed in the will. And so it was pretty clear what she was trying to do. She was trying to fund those gifts in the will by putting people's names on the accounts. But they got it twice. They got it twice. And what stunk about that is because there was a, a residuary, you know, there was a, everybody gets these dollar amounts and then everything that's left goes to my daughter. Well, what stinks is all those people that were specifically named, number one, they got the assets that they were already named on, but then from the estate assets, they got it again based on the provisions in the will. And the daughter who was supposed to get that lump sum got hardly anything because all the expenses that, you know, so again, homemade estate planning, um, people have to be really careful. People, you know, often do it and I get it. People do it because they think lawyers are too expensive or they think it's just a form. Um, but we've seen time and time again that the expense of fixing mistakes or trying, sometimes they're not fixable can often, it could be 10 times what it would have cost to just have a proper, you know, will or trust done to begin with. Right. I use the analogy a lot with my clients that early in my marriage, my husband and I would buy cheap appliances because that's <laughs> all we could really afford. And what I found is we've had to buy them three and four times <laughs> over the last 10 years or so. And it's been kind of this epiphany for me. You buy cheap, you buy twice. And sometimes with homemade estate planning, it's oftentimes done as a cost saving method, right, right. but it ends up costing more in the long run because it's either incorrect, it's invalid, it's not thorough. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do what was intended to do. And so to clean up that mess, it can cost a lot more. And in a lot of cases, more than one attorney gets involved. Right. So the legal fees can just be outrageous right. to fix that. So what about the next pitfall about failing to maintain a plan? So we don't just create an estate plan, set it aside, let it collect dust and never look at it again. Or, you know, something we see a lot is folks create estate plans when they have minor children and then they never <laughs> think about their planning again until they've entered their retirement years. And we pull it out and we see, oh, there's still minors provisions named for those children who are now in their 40s and 50s. Right. So talk a little bit for us about the proper maintenance and, and how we make sure plans work when we actually need them to work. Right. So we have learned over the years that um, people, they get their estate planning done and they, you know, leave the attorney's office and they have that nice stack of documents. Usually it's, you know, they're printed on nice, you know, our office, we use this nice, you know, linen paper, really pretty. Um, <laughs> and while those documents are great and they're necessary, people have a false sense of security um, that they, oh, I've done my estate planning. I'm good. And they forget what's in those documents. And they also don't consider how their assets need to align with what's in those documents. That's, you know, probably the biggest pitfall that we see is, you know, if I have a will that says, you know, that's the example that I, I just talked about with the lady that did all the joint owners on accounts, but then her will, you know, didn't align with that ownership. And so, you know, making sure that an estate plan stays intact over time, it's not just whether the documents need to be changed, because maybe they're fine. Maybe your wishes, you know, stay the same over time. But what about your assets? You know, surely there will be changes. Um, it's interesting to me. We get 
we get asked all the time um, when folks move here from other states, you know, do I need to update my, you know, my estate planning if I've just moved to Delaware or Maryland? And, you know, oftentimes they don't, you know, oftentimes, you know, there's the substantive nature of their documents is fine. But what I've seen is when you start talking to them and you say, well, now I see here that, you know, your nephew Johnny is named as your, what, Johnny? No, no, Johnny's on. The, oh, really? Let me see that. They completely have forgotten what their documents say. And so I find more, more often we're actually having to update the documents because their wishes have changed, not so much because their, their, you know, the residency. law, right, their residence has changed. Right. And so really important to look at that estate plan, you know, really it should be reviewed every three to five years. And then certainly as people get older or if they have any serious health issues, it really should be reviewed regularly. Because again, you created a estate plan, you hope you don't need it anytime soon, right? I mean, we create them and we, we hope that we're not going to need it for a while. Right. But the only way to make sure that it does the job it's intended to do, you know, way out here when it is needed is to really make sure you're reviewing it regularly. At our office, we have our CARES, the PWW Law CARES program stands for Continued Alignment, Review, Education, and Support. Um, it is a annual membership program that our clients can, can join. Um, and it's really, you know, we created it because we want to create estate plans at work. And we figured we needed to figure out a way to encourage clients to commit to reviewing their documents regularly and their planning regularly. Awesome. So let's wrap up today's episode with one last pitfall. I think that there's probably more pitfalls that we could cover, <laughs> but you know, we see the term elder law all over the place. Mm -hmm. It sort of has become a buzzword, if you will. It's on websites. Attorneys are holding themselves out as elder law attorneys. And so what makes us different? Mm -hmm. Why aren't all elder law attorneys the same? Why can't your real estate or divorce attorney do your estate planning and asset protection planning work for you? And, and talk a little bit about that for us. So, you know, our firm is interesting um, in that we have four attorneys and this is all what we do. We have four attorneys. We have an amazing team of 15, we're ever growing. Um, and we focus on estate planning planning and elder law. We're not going to do someone's divorce. We're not going to do their real estate settlement. Um, and so you have to be really careful, um, you know, with the baby boomer generation now becoming seniors, uh, lots of attorneys have figured out that, you know, there's a, a market um, for, you know, elder law and estate planning. Um, and so we talk about forms, you know, talk about people using, you know, just lay people using forms. So there's unfortunately a lot of attorneys out there who also will find a form and think that it's so easy they can and just plug information um, into those blanks and those forms. And they're not really counseling clients on what their options are. You know, we feel like that's the most valuable service that we have to offer. It's not the document we produce, but it's our experience. It's our, you know, helping give clients ideas. It's guiding them through the decision-making process. It's making sure their assets are properly aligned. You know, that is a huge mistake that we see come out of other attorneys' offices where they're not even asking about the assets. They're not looking at how assets are owned. So it's like anything else. If you want quality estate planning, you got to make sure you go to the right person. Um, and you got to make sure that that person is skilled. You know, to that end, we created the, the top 10 questions to ask your elder law attorney. And that's a document that's on our website. But we created that to help folks uh, navigate this issue. And so the idea is if you're interviewing attorneys um, to do your estate planning for you, 
ask them those questions. You know, you can take our name off the sheet of paper, but ask them those questions. <laughs> and if they can't rattle off answers, thorough, detailed answers to those questions immediately, um, then they're probably not the best choice. Right. Doing the research, getting the education yes. and not just defaulting to someone, even a family member. We sometimes see that where, oh, my family member is a lawyer, but they might practice in a completely different area. We are, are, refer to other attorneys all the time. If it comes into our office and it's not something we feel suited to handle, we'll refer it out. And we hope that other attorneys are doing the same thing. Right. Something comes across their desk that they're not familiar with. They're going to send it our way because this is all we do and we do it thoroughly. Thanks for being with us today on Off the Clock. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at pwwlaw.com. Of course, you can contact us directly by calling 302-628-4140 or emailing info at pwwlaw.com. We're here to help you plan today to protect your families tomorrow. See you next time. Anything discussed on Off the Clock is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. To obtain the most reliable guidance, listeners are encouraged to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals.